This week on the Rotten or Righteous podcast. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a big old cloud that lives right there. It's your cloud, so you just put him wherever you want him. Little tiny circles here. And he just sort of floats across the sky. And, and he's got a friend that lives right there. Clouds need friends, too. We all need a friend. Welcome to Rotten Righteous, the only podcast that is actually just a happy little cloud just floating so peacefully in that big, beautiful sky. Joining me today, he's the magic white that really lets our wet-on-wet technique stand out. He's Luke Taylor. Hi, Luke, 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 Luke. Can you describe your wet-on-wet technique a little bit further? Yes, I'd like to put down a nice cobalt white mixed with a little paint thinner. Get that canvas nice and nice and glistening. And then I just go on there with some official Bob Ross products. You know, Bob Ross blues, Bob Ross reds. And then I just paint beautiful, beautiful landscapes. Along with Luke, he needs to be rinsed out and then have the devil beat out of him. <laughs> I knew that was- He's Scott Judge. I knew that was coming. I do too. And me, well, my mom always told me that I wasn't a mistake. Just a happy accident. I'm Zach Tyler. <laughs> oh my. Today, if you haven't guessed by now, we're going to be looking at the 2021 Netflix original documentary, Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed. And uh, this is the last little bit of me talking like this. Amen. Because I'll be real honest with you. Talking like this is harder on my voice than talking normal. So, I'm going to get out of my Bob Ross. I'm going to take my Bob Ross afro off right now. Get back into Zach. Phew, that afro wig was on tight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bob Ross. May he rest in peace. Before we begin, I do have to put out a... um, I I think we need to put out a a little bit of a disclaimer. I agree. I don't want to get sued. Uh, no, not that we're going to get sued. I mean, that's a very real possibility. But Annette may sue us. But although this documentary is about Bob Ross, and Bob Ross is basically a, a woodland creature of a man, uh, I do think that it's important to say that at a certain point, we will be talking about an extramarital affair. And so some of the content of this week's episode may be a little PG. We'll try to keep it as tame as possible, but we also want to be true to the actual... Uh, uh, narrative that took place in just over 20 minutes ross could paint a beautiful landscape and as you watch him you're just mesmerized as trees lakes and mountains seem to magically come from his paintbrush and onto the canvas however If Bob Ross loved anything more than painting, it was his son, Steve. Steve Ross is not his father. He is a grizzled, middle-aged, chain-smoking artist, but he has a story to tell. It's a story about his father and the people who betrayed his father. 
And it's a story that Steve thinks people need to know. I, I do also want to say, for those of you who have not watched the documentary, and like all of us were, except for Luke because he doesn't have a heart, uh, all of us were worried about Bob Ross comes out of this fairly clean. I have not lost much respect for Bob Ross as a person or a painter. It's not like he's got some super devious hidden skeletons. He's not a perfect guy, as we'll see as we go through this, but he still is. Bob Ross at the end of this. Is that fair to say? Yeah, just that small detail of adultery. Nothing major. But even but even then, you know, Bob Ross never once said that he was, you know, a minister. He was never trying to hide who he was. Matter of fact, he put who Bob Ross was out to the world, mm -hmm. and the world just ate it up. He seems like he was, we uh, you know, pretty genuine. Other than <laughs> other than his affair, it seemed like he was pretty genuine as far as like he wasn't uh, some kind of faker who was one mm -hmm. guy on camera and one guy off. But even then, can you not give him credit that him, he and his wife, who he cheated on with or, or cheated on, they still worked it out. You know, they still stayed together. So even that speaks to his character. Mm -hmm. They of, fixed it. You know, they make a mistake, but they're not just going to throw in the towel. They're going to work on it a little bit. You know, and we sit here and we call it adultery. I mean, could be that Bob Ross just called it several happy mistakes. That's true. Right. We don't know. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Luke, were you familiar with Bob Ross? I mean, obviously, you've known who Bob Ross was. I don't think there's a person alive who doesn't know a little bit about Bob Ross. But have you ever watched The Joy of Painting before this? Or Yeah, so Bob Ross, I would just looked it up. He died when I was four. So I was not like deeply connected on an emotional level with Bob and his painting, but we did watch reruns and uh, I enjoyed it. My parents, my parents liked it and uh, it was, it was a good show because we watched PBS all the time. Yeah. Well, I remember growing up, you're right. He did die when we were young, but I didn't know that as a kid, but between this old house and the joy of painting, mm -hmm. me and my dad used to watch those shows all the time. Yeah. Dad used to watch this old house all uh, reruns and reruns of this old house. I don't know. I just sit in my driveway and look at my old house and just go, huh? That show had so many promises it didn't keep. <laughs> but for the probably only two un uninitiated people on the planet, Bob Ross is a famous artist and instructor best known for his wildly successful PBS show, The Joy of Painting. We learn early on in the documentary much of the inspiration behind Bob Ross's landscapes come from the 12 years that he lived in Alaska. Why was he living in Alaska? I don't know. Alaska. <laughs> it's because he was in the military. I know, but then I couldn't say Alaska. You didn't work that joke Alaska, yet. I'll, I'll ask a question here about why Bob Ross was living in... Yeah. Terrible. He was, uh, he was in... Bob was in the Air Force and stationed in Alaska in 1965. And that year, he met and married Vicki Ross. I assume Ross was not her maiden name. But he married Vicki. And shortly thereafter, Lil Steve was born. Lil Stevie Ross. A modern-day Vicki is in the, po or in the documentary for a grand total of two seconds. When we met, he loved to paint. He would paint sometimes from 2 o'clock in the morning. He had to be at work at 8. Thanks, Vicky. Get back in your closet. It's great. We never see her again. But Bob was also an avid outdoorsman. He loved nature, and and it's seen in his artwork. He truly, she truly does do his best to capture his love of nature in those paintings. 
Now, of course, when most people think of Bob Ross, besides painting, one of the first things that come to mind is the hair. Bob Ross's inspiration for his art may have been the Alaskan wilderness, but his trademark hairstyle came straight from 1960s Harlem. Uh, this is the first big reveal of the, the documentary, and that is the fact that Bob Ross's signature afro was the result of a perm. I did not know Did you ever this. get a perm, Luke? I have never had a perm. My mother got a perm once, and uh, she yeah. hated it. <laughs> yeah, my mom used to get perms all the time, but I don't think anyone's got a perm in the last 20 years. I know I so. haven't. I haven't had one since, like, For those of you... 84. Right. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a perm is also called a, a hair permanent. And it's a hairstyling process that uses ammonium thioglycolate and heat in a process that leaves the hair curly for months. And so every month or so, Bob would go to his hairstylist and get his hair repermed, which he said uh, was him getting his springs tightened, which really is adorable. At the end of the day, Bob Ross is an adorable human being. Yeah, he, he, he is. Seriously, he's like... Although, he's, you know, I, I was going to be mad at him for having a fake afro, but then they went through that whole backstory of, like, how he was always into hair and had all these interesting hairstyles, and I was like, oh, okay. So it's it's not mm -hmm. just, like, a like a camera thing. Yeah, it was like then he became long. famous... He became famous with that afro, and then he was just stuck with it because that was his brand. He couldn't he couldn't deviate from the the brand. There's a guy. We have shown several. There's a guy on YouTube who's in that same horrible position. He does like camera reviews. His name's like Jared Poland, and he has a he's a white guy with an afro, like a big afro, and I think it's natural. But his website is Fro Knows Photo, mm. and I'm like, you can never cut that afro off in the rest of your life. And he's like, he's like 40. He has a lot of life to live, and he's gonna have to live it with an afro. Well, you know, I, I do sympathize with him because I've been wanting to use my genuine French accent, but since I started it out with an American accent on this podcast, I'm just basically locked in. People are too used to my voice, and so... You're going to be American that's, that's that. for the rest of your life. <sighs> Mondue. Fondue. We're then shown several pictures of a younger Bob Ross painting with his hair straight and in a pompadour. And I gotta be honest with you, if they didn't tell me that that was Bob Ross painting, I would yep. never have believed it. You wouldn't know. It did not look like... It didn't <laughs> look like him at that's all. That's why he had to keep his afro. No one even would have recognized him. By 1977, while stationed in Spokane, Washington, Bob and Vicki Ross divorced. And soon after, Bob fell in love with a homely-looking lady named Jane Zanardelli. Bob Ross certainly has a type. Yeah? Old? He... he he likes to go for the old biddies. What's a biddy? Yeah. An old lady. Oh, yeah, they were. I, I, well, I couldn't tell. He was, he was like the, the he was like the Hugh Jackman of the art world. You ever seen Hugh Jackman's wife? She's like dead. <laughs> but yet walking. <laughs> she's so old, she's dead. <laughs> um I was I, I they I guess they were like significantly older than him now that I realize he died when he was 53. Like I honest I thought he was like in his 70s when he died and he just looked young cuz he probably had makeup on or whatever. But uh no. those ladies were definitely old then. Mhm. Mm yeah, he 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 You know, you heard of of cougars. He went after wheelchair bound cougars. <laughs> 
Now, and here's the reason why I didn't look into this first divorce, but the mom or, or his first wife's only in the documentary for about five seconds, mm-hmm. which seems odd. And it seems that Steve lived with Bob from that point on. So I, I believe that that first relationship, I don't think it was Bob's choice that he, he left Vicky for Jane. Jane and Bob got married, and by all accounts, the two loved one another, and the relationship was happy and a, a stable home for Steve to grow up in. And then we're not introduced to Bob Ross's art teacher, John Tham. Bob Ross took a, a painting class from Tham, and right away, John was blown away by Bob's talent. And because of this, he definitely doesn't want to be thought of as Bob's teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, he—I mean, he does. He definitely does want to be thought of that, but he definitely wants to appear to be humble and say that he was not Bob Ross's teacher. Now, around the time that Bob and Jane got hitched, Bob Ross saw a painting video done by a very loud and brash Italian man named William Alexander. Hooray! That's what we have to do. I have to put myself in that almighty Bobby who was known for painting very, very fast. It almost made me angry the first time I saw Alexander on TV, that he could do in a matter of minutes what took me days to do. It got to be fast. Don't fiddle around for hours. So many details there. People were done painting and would think that guy works a whole year on that painting. It was Alexander who introduced Ross to the technique of, the unfortunately named technique of wet on wet. <clears throat> who did that artist remind you of? Well, I only other, know one other Italian person, Scott. You only know one? <laughs> yeah, like, personally, I've only met one genuine from Italy Italian. Same. How many Italians do you know? I know a lot. That's weird. <laughs> Basically, what wet on wet means is that you prime a canvas with white, gray, or black before you start painting. And you paint on it before it's dry, and this allows your oil paints to move more freely, unlike traditional oil paintings uh, where... You have to let the paint dry between the layers. You can just move from one layer to the next. So Bob Ross just gobsmacked with this William Alexander guy. And Ross tells John Tham that they need to go and meet this guy. And sure enough, they they find each other, Mr. Alexander and Mr. Ross, and they just hit it off. And then when Bob retired from the Air Force, William Alexander hired Ross to work for Alexander's company as a traveling art instructor. So for the next few years, Bob worked up and down the East Coast teaching people to paint and selling official Bill Alexander paint and brushes. Can't say I was aware that the market for um, paint brushes and and, uh, canvases was, was... So lucrative. This was the 70s. People didn't have cell phones back the, then. They were just like, uh. they didn't have cell phones or the internet. They're like, what are we going to do with our time? Didn't have I a know. Walmart. Let's do, let's do a painting. That's true. Wow. I wonder what it was like to live back then. It was probably terrible. <laughs> In 1982, working as a traveling art instructor, Bob Ross met another artist named Dana Jester, and the two became good friends. And Dana remembers that. As Bob was selling these Williams paints, there was this little old white-haired lady that was with Bob, helping him make these sales. If you guys want to know where Satan's at this week, it's right there in 1982 selling paints with Bob Ross. Mm -hmm. This little white-haired lady's name was Annette Kowalski. (laughs) 
Nat met Bob at one of Bill Alexander's classes that Ross was teaching, and then like a leech, she just glommed onto him. According to Annette, that while she was grieving the loss of her son, she saw something in Bob Ross that she liked. Steve Ross tells us that Annette used Bob Ross to claw her way out of her depression. Before long, Annette realized that she could use Bob's talent to make herself and her husband, Walt Kowalski, a.k.a. the second half of where Satan's at, a lot of money. While Bob saw a partnership with the Kowalskis as an opportunity to keep making his living by painting, they only saw dollar signs. Or as John Tham put it, I don't think Bob really understood what the future held for him at that time. He was just not into it for the money. But the Kowalskis certainly were. <laughs> So if you want out of your depression, you should find someone to exploit to make lots of money. That's the lesson I learned here. I mean, it's cheaper than Zoloft. Then the documentary kind of takes a, a turn towards the bizarre. You see, it was the Kowalskis who encouraged Bob Ross to leave William Alexander's company and start his own company, the Bob Ross Incorporated. Not the Bob Ross Incorporated. Bob Ross Incorporated from this point on referenced as BRI. So the Kowalskis encouraged Bob Ross to start BRI and basically do the same thing as his mentor, travel around the country and sell paint and brushes and canvases and whatnot just under his own name. Then, to save money, the Kowalskis encouraged Bob, Jane, and Steve just to move into their house. Do you have an issue with this? I mean, it's weird. It's real weird. Hey, Luke, I'm starting up this podcast. Why don't you and Megan just come and live in our house? Well, if I worked for you and... Live in our house, Luke. I don't feel like it's... Um, if you're employed by somebody because you're starting up a business, right? And you're listen, I have never once had a boss in my life who said, Hey, Zach, why don't you save some money moving my house? No, yeah, but nay, nay, sir. But the point I need <laughs> the point is, you're both, in it. Away you're from both you. in it together. You're trying to make it lucrative, so you're finding ways to save money and make before you can make it profitable. Mm -mm, I'm not moving into somebody's house. <sighs> I, I just find it odd. This is just weird. I don't know why it just is. Now, Steve tells us that living in the Kowalski's house was interesting, to say the least. Walter and Annette basically handled the administrative side of Bob Ross's painting ventures. And then they started to have secret meetings away from Bob Ross's ears. Now, Walter, who had just retired from the CIA, put his government training and contacts to good use. He used his government techniques to basically force BRI to be successful. Now, one thing he did that was particularly odd was he recorded every single one of his phone calls with a device that had a suction cup connected to the phone's receiver. I mean, it's just shady. These secret meetings, this weird plunger stuck on the back of the phone, recording every conversation. I mean, it's one thing to live in somebody's house and start a business with them, I guess, to save money. It's another thing when 
the your business partners are are creating a pretty definite line in the sand uh, between you being the talent and them being the the business side of things. There are a few red flags, like Annette's collection of fetal pigs that she had lining the walls in jars of formaldehyde. Hmm, <laughs> should have been a big <laughs> clue right then. I mean. Especially that night they were all sitting down to watch Let's Make a Deal and she took one out and just started snacking on it. It was real weird when that happened. Or when she tried to bite Jane and turn her into her vampire slave. I guess it was a different Guys movie. remember that part? Sounds like I she... could have fell asleep and dreamed about it. Sounds like she uh, was thinking about biting Bob. Turning him into her vampire slave. I'm sure she did bite Bob at least once. <laughs> Now, today, and this is what broke my heart, truly it is, because all of the people that are being interviewed, Bob's old friends and colleague and his son, they're all sitting around and basically wondering what would have happened if Bob Ross never got involved with the Kowalskis. And that's a terrible thing to have to sit around and wonder. Mm -hmm. Like, how would my dad's life have turned out if he didn't get involved with these two people? Would there have been another path to the stardom that he achieved? It's hard to think that as great as he was, that there wouldn't have been another path that, that the world would have known Bob Ross. With his talent, he would have been found. I, mm-hmm. I truly believe yeah. that. I mean, he's traveling around the country teaching people to paint. He would have been found. I don't know, because like, there's so many talented artists. Like, You just get online and you look at some of these artists just in, with incredible talents, but they don't have the business mind behind it, right? So they can't market themselves or they don't know how to market themselves well. And so there's tons of people. I think that's part of the reason that artists become famous after they die is because they're artists and they have a passion for art, but the business stuff, like, like they say later in the documentary, like Bob Ross had no idea how, how much product he was selling behind his name. It's like, cause he was interested in the art. And, uh, well, I think- that, and I think that the Kowalskis were keeping it from him. I don't think that, but do you think he wanted I mean, to yeah, he died. He died in 95, but if he was around long enough to see YouTube and things like that pick up, because the difference between Bob and other artists is nobody could really do what Bob did. Nobody could paint a landscape as beautiful and just absolutely stunning as Bob Ross in as short a period of time that he was able to do it. That's, I mean, anyone can paint a picture. I'm, I don't mean to take that away from any landscape or artists out there, but, you know, if you give me five years and say, hey, I need you to paint a picture of a mountain, within five years, I could figure out how to paint a picture of a mountain. Bob was special, though. But if you handed me, you know, a, 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 a canvas and say, hey, you have 23 minutes to paint a picture of a mountain, that's different. I mean, even today, there's a reason why on, on, on Netflix, the joy of painting is syndicated there. People will watch Bob Ross paint. I, I even use it sometimes when I'm having a trouble focusing. I'll put the joy of painting on and listen to it uh, in like the corner of my screen because there's just something mesmerizing and comforting and calming and soothing. And you know, soothing about watching this man paint these pictures. We should be hearing in this documentary from a lot of other different people. Mm-hmm. However. We're told very early on in the documentary that the Kowalskis keep their control over Bob Ross's legacy through fear. And we're told 
that dozens of people backed out for or backed out of their interviews for this documentary because they were afraid of the Kowalskis suing them. That's what they would do. You say anything about the Kowalskis, you're Satan. Come and sue us. I will give you every bit of what Rotten Righteous is worth. You can have every cent of what this podcast is worth. I think you're terrible people. It's <laughs> good. Matter of fact, you can have double what this is worth. Hey, I'll give you a triple. That's right. I'm feeling generous. <laughs> Watch us hit it big between now and then. We'll get sponsors <laughs> yeah. in. All of a sudden, we're worth $500,000, and then the Kowalskis come for <laughs> For all the bad that the Kowalskis did, they can be credited with one thing. They were technically the ones that introduced Bob Ross to the world as a whole. Because in 1981, Bob was filming a commercial for an art class he was hosting uh, when the station manager saw him painting and was amazed. And uh, he worked it out with the Kowalskis and they developed the joy of painting. Before long, Bob Ross was on over 40 local PBS stations, bringing amazement and joy with his soft-spoken delivery into people's living rooms through their television. He preached that anyone with practice can paint. One of my favorite lines that he says in this is that... People continually say, I can't draw a straight line. I don't have the talent, Bob, to do what you're doing. That's baloney. Talent is a pursued interest. In other words, anything that you're willing to practice, you can do. And this is no exception. He, he truly believed that anyone could be an artist. And that resonated with so many people. And Steve Ross then tells us something that makes me very happy. His son lets us know that the Bob you see on The Joy of Painting is pretty close to who he was in real life. Mm -hmm. Which is great, because sometimes you watch these shows and you get an idea of who these people are, and they turn out to be human turds. Idiots, <laughs> monsters. But Bob Ross, man, he looks, like I said, he's an adorable human being. He's, he's and he genuine. is an adorable human being. He's genuine. And it's good to know that that bled over into his everyday life. It wasn't that act that you talk about. I would have loved to have met him. And he would have loved to have met you, Scott. We could have talked he about just said, squirrels. Just said, you're a happy little clown. Just floating up there in the air. Just, just a happy little clown. After the joy of painting started, Dana, Jester, Bob, and Steve Ross continued to travel and teach and training others uh, uh, to, to paint like Bob Ross. And Bob and his workshops and his show were gaining traction. But Bob wasn't the only painting game in town. Next, we're introduced to the stars of this documentary. <laughs> Gary and Catherine Jenkins who also taught painting on PBS, but they specialized in painting flower portraits. And another thing about Bob Ross that I love is they two could have, or these two people, the Jenkins and the Rosses, could have been, you know, rivals and competitive towards each other. However, Bob and Gary were friends. They would walk around art conventions and see which one of them got recognized more. It was Bob. Can you imagine now, just painting flowers as your livelihood? Don't you think you'd get no. bored? Uh, I mean, Georgia O'Keeffe figured out a way to make it pretty uh, lively. But no, back to Gary Jenkins and Bob. Bob would always tell people that he was a tree and mountain guy, and if they wanted to learn how to paint flowers, they should go to the Jenkins instead of him, and that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. However, Bob wasn't as innocent as his on-screen persona. 
For example, he was a big fan of telling dirty jokes to loosen up the crew before taping. I see. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't understand. He was also a motorhead. He owned a Corvette and he liked to take people out on fast joy rides. And he was just an overall fun loving, energetic, larger than life personality. And his family, his friends, and his co workers loved him for it. You know, I don't know very much about cars, but they said he had a 69 Stingray. And I, even I know what a 69 Stingray looks like. Mm-hmm. That's a nice looking car. Bob was. Mainly in charge of being the face of BRI, connecting with people. And his wife, Jane, and the Kowalskis handled the administrative side of the business. And in the beginning, the two families seemed to have been going along pretty well. They had a good thing going. Thankfully, as we've said from the beginning, this documentary doesn't do much to hurt the public opinion of Bob Ross. But they do humanize him a little bit. For example, uh, we're shown that Bob understood that his audience was mostly women, which is why he speaks, well, sensually, almost as if he was communicating to a woman in bed. That's his words, not mine. Grab it, lift it, fluff it, tease it, pull it. There. Make love to it here. Very gentle. Very gentle. He was trying to be a little sexy. I talked to only one person when I was filming, and I'm really crazy about that person. It's a one-on-one situation, and I think people realize that, and they, they do feel that they know me, and I feel that I know them. Barely touching. Just caress it. Graze it. Caress it. Shake off the excess. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of it. And Bob was charming and a natural flirt. He knew that personal attention would make people feel good. And he had a thing for old ladies, so it all worked out for him. Because he could flirt with these old silver foxes, make them feel all, all, all good about themselves, and be like, and don't you want some Bob Ross paint right here? <laughs> $76 a tube. It's a good thing that he uh, was into old ladies, because uh, he knew how to appeal to them. And, I mean, old ladies are the people who paint. Old ladies are the people that have money, too. Yeah. Their husbands are dead. No one's telling them how to spend their money. Their house is paid for. That's the truth. What else are they going to buy except for some paint? I've watched some of his old episodes, too, and there's been a couple of scenes that they showed on there where he was talking like that. I'm like, you know, I wondered when I watched that episode what the heck he was doing because I thought then, <laughs> I'm like, Bob, calm down. You can't be talking about your cloud that way. Like that way he's painting. But I tried this on Kelsey the other day. Did you now? It didn't work. She was like, she's been getting into like making these clay earrings. It's a hobby, I guess. And I walked in there and I was like, hey there, you making some clay earrings? Those are some, those look like happy little clay earrings. I think that, that they're, they're lovely. And she's like, you're creeping me out. Please go away. No, I'm not. I'm not creeping you out. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking sensually like Bob Ross. And then she just stopped talking to me. It, on, it only works on older women. And Kelsey's mm, like, mm. what, four years younger than you? So you have to use a different tactic. Yeah. As Bob was getting more popular with the frumpy Midwestern housewives of America, Annette Kowalski was getting more and more jealous. Dana is asked point blank what his impression of, or what his impression of Bob and Annette's relationship was. And he immediately gets cagey, saying, Hmm. I don't know. Do I go there? 
was Bob and Annette a thing? Everybody always asks that question. And the answer is, Steve might know. Great. That's great. Send us to his son so he can think about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was such a cough out. He knew. Of course he knew. Of course he knew. And then my favorite is they cut to Steve, and Steve is just like, There was an affair between my father and Annette, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't beating around the bush. He wasn't trying to give any tact. He was just like, nah, nah, they were definitely uh, having an affair. And then we cut to the best line in the whole show, and the only reason why I had to put a little disclaimer at the beginning, Gary Jenkins sitting next to his wife going, this was but in the 70s. No, 80s, 80s. honey. We weren't with Weber till 80s. It was, everybody was sleeping with everybody yeah, else. But, okay. okay, let's get that, back to You know, you can cut that out, but that's the way it was. And his wife yeah. <laughs> just looked absolutely horrified that her husband said those. Of course. Oh my goodness. I, I laughed so hard. She was like, just stop it. Stop it. <laughs> and he, he tells him, so that you guys, you guys can cut this out. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody, we won't. We're leaving it. <laughs> Listen, it was the 70s. We, honey, it was the 80s. I'm sorry. It was the 80s. How, Mr. Gary Jenkins, I think he needs a documentary next. I agree. I want to hear. I want to watch Gary Jenkins in the 70s or 80s. They kind of blur. They kind of run together. <laughs> but uh, soon enough, Jane learns of Bob and Annette's affair. And Jane and Bob reconcile, but there was a rift that began to form between Bob Ross and the Kowalskis. Steve tells us this story that I'm still trying to figure out what it means, but young Steve was living in the Kowalskis' house along with his parents and walked past the bathroom one night and all the lights were off and there was a net in her bathrobe with like three lit cigarettes at the same time, mm-hmm. just just smoking away. And she looks to to Steve and goes, Steve, you're the only one who loves me. In modern day, Steve's like, no, I'm not. I'm not the only one. I don't love you, Satan. Get back. If I was in a gospel chariot, I'd run right over you, Annette. His message, though, was so mixed, his mannerisms. Because he throws his hand into his heart and he's like, oh, wow. And I couldn't figure out if that was, he was flattered or he's like... You're a crazy old bat. I think that he was creeped out by it. I don't. I, I didn't get the thing like, oh, you're right. How sad that you're only loved by me, and I don't even love you. So what does that say about you? I also felt like there was kind of mis- mixed messages on this. And and then what made it even more confusing was that like the scene didn't go anywhere. It yeah, was like, right. it was it. just like, like what is that? You know, she's sitting on the commode, just... smoking cigarettes in this like. In, in this you know black silhouette, which is and a normal, they, they, it's a normal thing to do. I mean, all of us sit on the commode, smoke our cigarettes. I mean, of course, but uh, not three at a time. But um, um, see, I like to smoke my cigarettes on a public commode, like at a bathroom, and have the door open, and whoever walks by, just like you're the only one who loves me. <laughs> and then it doesn't go anywhere. It's just like that's the end of it, and it's never mentioned again. I, I feel like this documentary is light on details in an effort to protect Bob Ross. Like mm-hmm. I, I have that suspicion because there's just a lot know. that's like, you, you know that there's more there, but there's a not a lot that's not being revealed, which, you know, I can respect that, I suppose, but 
Um, for me, it was like I mean, the you, whole thing was kind of moving along slow and they weren't really getting to anything. And I feel like that might have been part of the reason. Even in the world that we live in now and the cancel culture that's around, if you are the person responsible for bringing down Bob Ross, you yourself <laughs> will get canceled for just destroying one of the most pure entertainers <laughs> in the history of television. He's untouchable. And not only that, but it's his son making this documentary. It's not going to be a hatchet job. Yeah. But I, I don't know why they left that in there. I think maybe he painted a picture of Annette sitting on the toilet. Because all these scenes of the pastor are shown with pictures of a painting that's that's happening. I think maybe he painted a picture of an old lady smoking three cigarettes on the commode. And they're <laughs> like, uh, this does story doesn't make any sense, Steve. Yeah, but I painted that picture. <laughs> Might as well just yeah, leave that, that was, one line in. That was a little just diverted bizarre. from the mountains and the trees to the commode. I think we should try to get in touch with the Kowalskis, actually. Get them on the show. Yeah, great. Perfect. No, I don't want to talk to them. Apparently, no one can find them, and no one even knows if they're alive anymore. Somebody's getting the money. Listen, Satan has been around since the dawn of time. He's just manifesting and Whether he takes the form of a serpent... Uh, an angel of light or the Kowalskis, Cougar he will woman. continue. Does, uh, Annette, after their uh, affair was ended, stopped coming to the tapings of the show. And the crew was just absolutely tickled pink about that. They were so happy Annette wasn't there anymore because everyone knew that they were the devil. I mean, if the devil stopped showing up, I'd be happy too. Despite the infidelity, Bob Ross and the joy of painting continued to take off. Season after season, Bob became more and more well-known. Hundreds of people were learning to paint thanks to Bob Ross's teachings. And the whole time, Bob remained his calm, sensual self, encouraging everyone to pick up a paintbrush. And Bob Ross's show became the most successful painting show in the history of television. And Ross became a hero to so many people of all ages. And while Bob's star was rising, the Kowalskis were busy making Bob Ross a brand. Teaming with Weber Paint, the Kowalskis began producing Bob Ross paint brushes and Bob Ross canvases. And while Bob was alive, he wasn't really involved in the business side, but he wouldn't allow Walt Kowalski to cut corners or to put out a shoddy product that had his name on it. And Walt hated that about Bob, because he wanted to make as much money as he could. Bob wanted to, you know, give people good products at a fair price, and uh, teach as many people as possible how to paint. But the Kowalskis are evil and terrible people, and they're blinded by greed. In 1991, Bob Ross received an emotional sucker punch. I remember walking into the back bedroom, and uh, for Probably only the second time in my life I saw my dad crying. And uh, uh, in the fetal position on the ground. His wife, Jane, died suddenly of cancer. And Ross slipped into a deep depression, but he worked through the pain by painting and producing the show. I would like to take just a second and thank you. I happened to mention that I had lost my wife. I have received hundreds and hundreds of cards from people all over the country expressing their sympathy and support from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for sharing my grief and for making my wife a very special person in your life too. He was working through his grief by talking 
to his audience as he paints, explaining his feelings and his heartache. Sometimes when you're not in such a good mood, paintings have a tendency to get a little darker because paintings reflect your mood. Sometimes you're not even conscious of it, it happens. You have light on light, you have nothing. If you have dark on dark, you basically have nothing. There we are. You know, it's like in life. If you gotta have a little sadness once in a while so you, you know when the good times come. I'm waiting on the good times now. Just a few weeks after his wife died, Bob Ross was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We wash our brushes, as you know, with odorless thinner. Shake it off. <laughs> Beat the devil out of it. That wet-on-wet -wet technique does require quite a bit of paint thinner. Almost every episode, you'd be smacking that brush around. Shake them off. <laughs> All the effervescence of the paint thinner would float up right into his nostrils. <laughs> and cover the whole room. Even while he was doing it, I had reservations about it. And the least little touch of paint thinner to your brush, and then go through the paint. I always wondered if maybe that didn't have something to do with the lymphoma. We'll wash them both while we got it going. And even though he knew he was dying, Bob kept working, filming at least three shows a day. And... As Bob Ross was suffering with cancer, the Kowalskis became worried because if Bob Ross dies, their business dies. Annette Kowalski decided to make herself the face of the company, just in case Bob didn't hang on long enough, uh, by making her own spinoff called The Joy of Painting Flowers. Remember uh, the Jenkins? Mm -hmm. Th they were the flower painting people on PBS. And because Annette had BRI behind her, she was able to rip off the Jenkins techniques, manufacture paintbrushes that were identical to the Jenkins brand of paintbrushes and paint, and she just slapped Bob Ross's name on them. Dirty. Now, the Jenkins asked the question, or, or question whether or not Bob knew about this. I can't imagine that Bob knew what Annette was doing and was okay with it. Well, it sounds like he didn't have any power either way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he right. was there to paint. That's what he loved to do. That gave him the opportunity. As far as, like, what they did on the business end, though, he said he, he was outvoted. So, it's like... Well, true. He was just, like, along for that, the ride, even if they went in a direction he didn't. Yeah. Well, when Jane died, remember, Jane was working with the Kowalskis mm -hmm. on the business side of things. And so when Jane died, he no longer had that inside man to see what they were doing when it came to these business decisions. And I think he kept painting not so much to make money or whatever, because he's dying at this point. But he did it, honestly, despite not enjoying working with the Jenkins, I believe, because he knew the effect that he was having on other people. Mm -hmm. You mean the Kowalskis? I mean, right. He didn't want to work with the Kowalskis, Kowalskis but he yeah. kept on making the show because he knows that there are kids that are learning to paint from him. And, and you know, we were introduced some people later on who, who literally their lives were saved, you know, because... They were able to channel their emotions through painting instead of trying to kill themselves. But because of Annette, the Jenkins lost their Weber paint line. 
They lost their television show, and they lost their customers. Steve then reflects that as Bob got sicker, Bob tried to do more and more to ensure that Steve would be taken care of after he was gone, that Steve would be his successor. Now, Steve didn't realize it at the time, but Bob was literally doing everything he could to give his success to his son. Like Bob was trying to get Steve in front of the camera more and painting more. There was a power struggle between us, I guess you would say. There was a little bit of a fight that broke out between us. I wanted to go off and do my own thing, and he wanted me to do what he did. And, and Steve didn't realize what Bob was doing, and at the time he just didn't want to be painting landscapes on TV, and so they actually had a falling out there uh, towards the end of his life, and they didn't speak a lot for a couple of years. But thankfully, towards the end of Bob's life, the two came back together. And Steve said something that literally brought tears to my eyes. If your parents are telling you to do something... It's not because they're trying to be mean. It's because they care. You know, they love you. And they want the best for you. In 1995, the year Bob Ross died, Bob told Steve that he realized the Kowalskis were doing things behind his back. And he decided that he didn't want to work for them anymore. And so he stopped doing the joy of painting and decided to do a kid's show without the Kowalskis. But it was short-lived as Bob couldn't produce it because he was becoming weaker and weaker. And now the Kowalskis weren't mad that Bob Ross was starting his own kids show. But they were mad that he started his own kids show because he looked sick. And he didn't, or and they didn't want people to know that he was sick because that might hurt their business. They're incredibly, incredibly selfish. I think you can, like, like you got to think, like, how do these people even live with themselves? Like, what scumbags? But, like, you can convince yourself of a lot of stuff if money is involved. Shortly before Bob died, Steve and his father went to the Kowalskis to deal with loose business ends. Now, Bob was so weak at this point that he had to have this meeting laying down in the Kowalskis' guest room. And when the door to Bob's room was shut, Annette cornered Steve and told her, or told him, that they wanted to build a memorial for Bob after he passed, that they needed Bob to sign some documents in order to get this done. And when Steve looked over the documents, the Kowalskis were trying to get Bob Ross to sign his name over to them under false pretense. And of course, Steve refuses, knowing that his father didn't want to give up his name. At this point in time, it's obvious they don't care about right, wrong, who they step on, what they have to do to maintain their their finances through what he has done, they're going to do everything. They don't care about Steve. I'm not sure about this plan, Scott. Maybe you're smarter than me and uh, you can explain it. Um, but according to John Tham, right before Bob Ross died in April of 1995, he married one of his nurses who had been caring for him for a few weeks. And I, I do not know how this helped <laughs> at all. It's my explanation of what he did. Uh, why I to me that just muddles the mess up even more because you now have someone that by law I would think through marriage has the rights to um I mean they were married for stuff. a grand total of three months. I'm starting to think that maybe this relationship was like a, a David type of situation where he just needed a warm body to lie next to. Could be. There's different spots in this. You just kind of think 
there's something missing here that we're not getting. And I think with this uh, situation, that that against the truth, there's something that's not revealed in this to help us better understand why that happened. What's your thoughts on that, Luke? Why? What What would be the purpose? The only thing I was thinking was that if the contract was written so that his wife had a 50 or his wife had yeah. a vote in the company, that would give him a 50, 50 with the Kowalskis and, you know, a better chance of at least a, a equal say mm-hmm. in the direction of the company and the assets. But that doesn't even appear to be the case. Like, yeah. Cause it, it didn't work out. So I, I have no idea that. Yeah. It, well, it's just like, like, you're left scratching your head. Like they, they throw this detail in there, which is really interesting. I mean, who gets married to Mm -hmm. a guy who's dying in a few months and, and then nothing comes. Yeah. Please, please give us more. I don't know how marrying this third woman worked, but he set something up legally through this marriage that would take his name and BRI out of the hands of the Kowalskis and give it to his brother, Jimmy Cox and his son, Steve. Then in June of 1995, Bob Ross died. So, Zach, you were four when Bob Ross died. Luke, how old were you? Four. Four. I, I still I, I, I still remember. I, I mean, 1995, I was I was 24 going on 25. Oh, and, you're uh, so old. It's gross. I know, but I remember. That was, that was sad when I heard. Now, here's the thing, though. Bob Ross died, and the Kowalskis... Did not show up to his funeral. Yeah. They kept Bob's funeral a secret from the press and his friends. They showed Bob Ross's obituary in the local paper. And it was like a tiny little box shoved two-thirds of the way down the page. Mm-hmm. And at his funeral, there were only 30 to 40 people there. This man loved people. And people loved him. It had 30, thousands 40, upon thousands of fans. And it's not like they were trying to keep it private or Bob Ross wanted his funeral to be private. Yeah. No, that's just because of the Kowalski. And the saddest part about this is some of his best friends had to learn about his passing in the paper. Mm-hmm. I'm confused why this wasn't like spread more widely by his friends that knew and by his son. Mm-hmm. Like, because why, why not go to, you could go to any paper in the United States back then or call any news agency, they would absolutely love to run the story and be the first to know that Bob Ross died, right? I mean, that'd be massive traffic for them. And yet, none of them did that. But the thing is, the Kowalskis, for the majority of professional life, took care of all of this. So they probably told Steve, hey, don't worry about it. You just worry about mourning your father and getting the funeral ready. We'll take care of the press and everything else. And then when the day comes, he looks out and... There's nobody there. Maybe, but he knew that they were scumbags at that point. Because remember that he yeah, he but kn- but his dad is dead. You know, you're not thinking. You know, you're not thinking straight at that point in time. You're just thankful for the help. Yeah. I mean, I know this from personal experience. My dad's still alive, but somehow I know. <laughs> <laughs> you said that, and I'm sitting here going. When'd your dad die? I think I would know about that. He has never died and he never will. Mm. He's immortal. Following his death, the Kowalskis continued on like nothing happened and continued to sell Bob Ross products. And they even moved their 
company, BRI, and, and the joy of painting into a new market, Europe. They hire a marketing director named Bert Effing. Great name. What a guy this is. To sell the joy of painting to German public television and collect European orders for BRI's Weber line of paint products shortly. Uh, and, and he was technically hired shortly before Bob passed. But Bert is with us today and tells us that basically the moment Bob died, he noticed things change uh, immediately in BRI. For example, the certified instructors, those that would go around and teach Bob Ross's me or method to students around the country, were forced to sign a contract that said they couldn't promote other artists or use any other product other than BRI. The students in these classes were encouraged to inform BRI and the Kowalskis if any of their instructors broke these rules. And if they did, they would be quickly removed from the class. Keep in mind, Bob Ross was the kind of guy that would send people over to the Jenkins if they wanted to learn how to draw flowers or mm -hmm. paint flowers. We're shown an email from an anonymous person who worked as an instructor during this time. And it reads, I lived under communist rule for five years in Vietnam, three of which uh, I spent in prison. The way BRI ran the class reminds me of life under the communist regime. Everybody was encouraged to suspect everybody else. What do you think Bob would say about this situation if he were alive? I believe that the Bob Ross legacy is being done in injustice by the surviving partners of the Bob Ross company. You be the judge. I will be the judge, and I agree. Bert tells us that the Kowalskis were making all these changes and claiming that they were doing this in the name of Bob Ross, even after Bob Ross was clearly not involved. Bert also witnessed firsthand painters forging Bob Ross's name on paintings for the Kowalskis and BRI. The thing about Bob Ross is he wanted people to be able to paint like him. So obviously his paintings are going to be uh, replicated fairly easily. So you get some decent painters replicating these Bob Ross paintings and then writing Ross' name on it, and then you can sell it off as a genuine Bob Ross. For lots and lots of moolah. Actually, I looked this up. You can get a Bob Ross for like six grand. I mean, that's not cheap, but it's not as mm -hmm. expensive as I thought it was going to be. I wonder how many of them are fakes. I don't know. I'm not buying a Bob Ross. As much as I would love to own a real Bob Ross painting, mm -hmm. I never will because I don't know. Because we're also told that the only person who was allowed to authenticate a genuine Bob Ross versus a, a forgery was Annette Kowalski. <laughs> the fox is in the hen house, Zach. When the uh, interviewer asked Bert Effing what he thought about this, he responds, Bullshit. BS, sorry, baloney. It's great. <laughs> and it like, is. That's what I was thinking in my head. It really is. And what might be even worse is that BRI since then has put Bob Ross's products on coffee mugs, t-shirts, pajama pants, and whatnot else. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to watch this documentary is the calendar I have this year is a Bob Ross calendar. <laughs> it has a, a quote from Bob Ross in one of his, his landscapes, and I'm disgusted by looking at it now because mm -hmm. I know who profited off of that, and Steve doesn't any Bob Ross product you see right now, his son is not 
seen a cent of it. Zero. And it and it's made millions. millions. And right now I'm telling you, I'm I'm telling you, dear listeners, if you have any respect for this show, do not buy Bob Ross products again, because it's not going toward the Rosses. It's going into the pockets of the Kowalskis. In 2016, Weber, the paint company, let their contract expire with BRI. They're not going to be producing their products anymore. The director of Weber at the time, Lawrence Cap, has actually a good heart, and he wants to go into business with Steve because he knows that Steve Ross is not profiting off of this. And they want to produce a uh, line of paint, not underneath Bob Ross's name, but Steve Ross's name, and his full legal name is Robert Steve Ross Paint Products. But they were informed that they couldn't do that unless Steve owned his last name. Can you imagine not owning your last name? No. I don't understand how that even works. I mean... Because Ross is so synonymous with Bob Ross. I know, but legally, I mean, that's like your name. You're his son. I know. Like, I don't understand how you don't have rights to that. Well, they, they explain it here in just a second. So Steve can't go into business or put his name on his own paint products unless he owns his name. So he meets BRI in court. Which, to me, doesn't make any sense, because weren't we just told that back in 1995, right before he died, he married his nurse Mm -hmm. for some reason? Because that's how he was going to make sure that Steve kept the Ross name? Well, Lawrence Cap tells us that back in 1996, right after Bob died, the Kowalskis and BRI sued Bob's third wife and Bob's brother, Jimmy Cox, for all of Bob's paintings that were hanging up in his house his personal paint palette, his personal brushes, anything basically that Bob touched, BRI wanted to get their hands on. And we're told, and Steve finds out in court in 2016, that his uncle, Jimmy Cox, signed over Bob Ross's name to the Kowalskis just to get rid of the lawsuit. You see, Bob put his name in, into the hands of two people, Jimmy Cox and Steve Ross. But because Steve was younger, he thought that he could trust Jimmy to make the right decisions, so Jimmy was given 51% of the the business, the controlling share. It turns out that Jimmy was not that responsible, and without telling Steve Ross, and not telling him for 20 years, 1996 to 2016, Jimmy gave the Kowalskis Bob Ross's name. I still don't understand how that works either because, uh, so he can sign over 51%, which gives them majority share and they can make whatever decisions that they want. But Steve would still then own 49%. 49%. And so I, why he's not getting royalties on the 49. Because he didn't give it to him for money. For example, if I have a business right now and I own 51% and you own 49%, let's say this business is worth $100 just to make life easy for me math-wise. All right? Somebody says, hey, I want to buy your business. Great. I have 51%. I have the right to say, you got it. But I owe you $49. Sure. Because I sold it for $100. If the Kowalskis convinced Jimmy Cox to sign it over for $0, then Steve doesn't see a dime. And the way that it seems is that the Kowalskis were strong-arming Jimmy, saying, hey, you want this lawsuit to go away? Sign this piece of paper, and it does. But I'm sure that, now this is me speculating, I'm sure that Bob 
would have came over to Jimmy and be like, look, I want, he's 26 right now and an idiot, like all 26 year olds. I want you to hang on to this and make sure he doesn't do something stupid. Make sure that he doesn't sell my name for, you know, for money now and regret it later. Keep it until, you know, he's 35, 40, get, you know, has his life figured out and then give it all to him. But that's not what happens. As far as the documentary is concerned, they did reach out to the Kowalskis and ask them to participate in this film, but they refused in a letter, which were shown, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, they refused in a letter and basically threatened to sue the documentary if they didn't yeah. like what they saw. <laughs> we, we will not appear, and if you defame us in any way, we'll be there to meet you. But in uh, 2019, Steve lost his lawsuit against Bob Ross, Inc. Steve's lawyers were pretty confident that if they were able to appeal, they would win the case, that he'd get his name back. But it would cost about $90,000 in legal fees in order to get this done. Stephen Lawrence Cap couldn't come up with ninety grand. Now, I'm not saying ninety grand is chump change. You know, I, I've never seen ninety grand in my life. But my dad's not Bob Ross. Mm-hmm. You, you, do you get what I mean? Well, yeah, because it, if he can get his name back, chances are he's going to make that money back relatively quickly. Well, not even that, but can you imagine Bob Ross's only child doesn't have $90,000? Yeah. That blows the, my mind. The Kowalskis do. Yeah, but where's Bob's money? Did he have a bank account or was all the <laughs> money going to BRI? And they were just paying Bob out then, like a small portion every month. And Bob expected... You know, all the whole business to go over to his son, so he never, you know, squirreled money away. That's a good question. Out, outside of BRI, what were Bob's assets when he died? As far even as- if he had assets, remember BRI came in in 1996 and took all that away too. Yeah, well, it's true. He couldn't sell Bob's paintings. Could I mean even Bob's easel? If you could get Bob Ross's easel in his palette, you probably <laughs> could get ninety thousand. You know, a few, I don't think 90000 but you could get, you know, a few grand for that. Easy. I'd pay 100 but, for it. I bet you'd get 100 for it. But See, cool. I, I feel this like story this makes like, me so sad. It, it, it's just, it's so sad. This is like it's the, just, just like the business people that take advantage of the, artists, just like exploiting yeah. people. Like that's just, I, but at this, not to blame Bob Ross necessarily because he was doing what he loved, but. Like, you've got to watch out for... These people... I think Bob was was naive. I do. I think oh, yeah. he was blinded by the fact that he could do what he loved. He painted for a living. He was taking care of his family. And he never really thought about, well, what's going to happen when I die? I mean, he just... These people took care of him while he was alive. So he had no reason to question their motives. I mean, he started to, to get smart towards the end, but by then it was, it seems to be too late. Mm-hmm. I just can't, Bob Ross's son can't scrape up $90,000. That blows my mind. It really does. Mm-hmm. The documentary would have been a lot more interesting to me if they'd explained some of this. Like, what on earth happened here? Because you're not giving us really the full picture. Right. From what I understand, and again, I don't understand much. What they got Jimmy Cox to sign would have given BRI the rights to everything related to Bob Ross, period. That guy's an idiot. Paintings. <laughs> yeah. He, 
He really is, and he really screwed his nephew over. Big time. After not being able to file the appeal, Steve decided to move on from the lawsuit and just kind of do his own thing. You know, him and Dana are still teaching and working and, you know, getting by. And Steve says something at the end that was really touching because he revels in the fact that he was going to teach people that they could be valuable. They could be important in this world. The memory of Bob lives on through all of us, and his legacy lives on through all of his fans. He told me before he died that uh, he actually wanted people to remember him, but not to be sad. It's hard to tell people their faults, and maybe even harder to accept that you have made a happy accident. A lot of times, I've wondered if it's not your mistakes that teach you a lot more than your successes. A success, you just move on to the next thing, but when you make a mistake or have a happy accident, as Bob called it, uh, suddenly you learn all kinds of new ways to correct it. And through that learning process, you really start developing in new ways. These people took everything away from him and stole from his father but Bob's influence on the world, the lives that he touched, and the fact that he was loved by so many people, that's something that BRI cannot, mm-hmm. can't take away. And Steve loves his father. And he loves the power of his father's work. And the documentary ends with a few bits of on-screen text that just kind of wraps the story up uh, and puts a little bow on it. We're told that today, Steve and Dana continue to teach across the United States. They still teach people how to paint. After this film was completed, Bob Ross, Inc. reached back out to the filmmakers. The Kowalskis deny that their relationship with Bob Ross was fractured at any point. They also deny that Annette and Bob had an affair. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they did. And the Kowalskis continue to independently operate Bob Ross, Inc., which generates millions of dollars every year from licensing Bob's image and likeness. Despite Bob's intentions, Steve has not received any of the profits to date. I need to go paint a picture. I'm really sad. <laughs> well, so, there you have it. It's a, it's, it's a sad story. And, um... There's one bad word in it, so watch out, or it'll get you. <laughs> Luke, what movie are we watching next week? Um, uh, you know what's good? Hacksaw Ridge is good. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Pretty Hacksaw Ridge, though, is a war movie about a pacifist, so who can't get behind that? What the hell are you delaying, Captain? One Waiting for what? Private Doss. Who the hell is Private Doss? Luke, you picked a movie with two Again. In the first 30 seconds of the trailer. <laughs> I can't stay here while them go fight for me. Don't you figure this war is just going to fit in with I your I can't stay here. While everybody else that guy right there. I'm gonna be he plays Erwin. That's going to be my way to serve. Uh-huh. This is a no, he plays Elrond. Elrond, yeah. That'd be a whole different movie if you played Erwin. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. How could I love you? Because you weren't like anyone else. You're saying you could go to prison. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe. His body is 98% neck. He looks like a human giraffe. It like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Seriously, he has a four-foot-long neck. Run into that fire a battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. Three. That's fire. It's one word. I'm gonna get you home. Something you gotta see. Who did this? That's the car. We have to go back up tomorrow. And they're not gonna go up there without you. I mean, he touched her grenade. No, he backhanded her grenade. You better come home with me. Okay. I will. I'll come home with her. <laughs> Help me get one more. All right. Well, there you have it. Next week, we're going to hack solid up on a ridge. For Rotten or Righteous, I am... I'm sorry. I need to do this right. <clears throat> oh, Bob, you're back. For Rotten or Righteous, I'm Bob Ross. And I'm Zach Geiler. And I'm a happy cloud. Scott Judge. And I'm a Mormon missionary. <laughs> Why are you laughing at the Mormon missionary? Oh, that never gets old, Luke. It really doesn't. I don't know how. <laughs> before we before we go, here's a joke we saved for just for you, Scott. Oh boy. Did you uh do you know that communist jokes are never funny? No, I didn't know that. Not unless everyone gets it. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> hey there, everybody. I don't know about you, but, well, I'm feeling a little melancholy now that this episode's over. It wasn't exactly the most happy subject matter. So, what we're going to do is play a little song, have a couple bloopers, and if you stick around, You'll hear a little interview between Zach, Luke, and Zach's three-year-old son, JoJo. I'm the ghost of Bob Ross. Good night, everybody. I believe, I believe, every day's a good day when you paint. I believe, I believe, it'll bring a lot of good thoughts to your heart. I believe, I believe, every day's a good day when you paint. I believe. I believe it'll bring a lot of good thoughts to your heart. Let's build a happy little cloud. Let's build some happy little trees. There are no limits here. You start out by believing here. You can almost paint with anything. All you have to do is practice. There are no limits here.
God, I believe in here. This is your world. You're the creator. Find freedom on this canvas. Believe that you can do it. Because you can do it. Give it a little touch. Give it a little push. Make love to the canvas. Give it a little touch. Give it a little push. Push it. Push it. Caress it. Very gentle, very gentle, very gentle. Grab it, lift it, fluff it. You can go on and on and on. Back and forth, back and forth, forth. Layer after layer after layer. If you were a woman, Scott, at your age right now, Bob Ross would be interested in you. <laughs> I'm with a laugh or cry dead. He would be, though. <laughs> In 1991, a young man was born in Canton, Ohio, who'd grow up to change the face of 20 people's lives on his podcast. That's right. I was born then. Yay! But Bob Ross, (laughs) but, you know, as a wise man once said, as a new life comes into the world, an old life must go out. And in this case, my life replaced Bob's wife, Jane's life. What? This is your world. You're the creator. Find freedom on this canvas. Believe that you can do it. Because you can do it. Because you can do it. You can do it. I believe. I believe. Everything's a good thing when you paint. I believe. I believe it'll bring a lot of good thoughts to your heart. I believe, I believe every day's a good day when you paint. I believe, I believe it'll bring a lot of good thoughts to your heart. All right, you ready? Hopefully Scott will be here soon, but we do have a very special guest for a few moments in the studio here with us. What you didn't know is we recorded from a studio. That's why our audio quality is so top-notch all the time. Oh, is that it? It's because we are a studio production. It's pretty great. But no, I I brought along the only person who probably loves me unconditionally, and I think that's only because he hasn't known me that long. Uh, My three-year-old son, Joseph, is with us today. Say hi, Joseph. Joseph Smith. That's what we named him after, Joseph Smith. (laughs) I knew it. Can you say hi? Hi. No, that's not. That's that's a sneeze guard. The, the mic's up here. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, three-year-olds are known for their uh, decorum and their tact. So I thought that it'd be a great opportunity to ask him some questions to glean from his three-year-old wisdom. He probably has as much, if not more, decorum and tact than we do. So probably. Here, just talk into the microphone. Talk into the microphone. How are you doing today, Jojo? Good. <laughs> What'd you do today? <laughs> What'd you do? I changed with my toys. <laughs> what? I played with my toys. <laughs> you played with your toys? <laughs> Mr. Luke's going to ask you some questions. Will you answer them? No, stop playing with the mic. Just talk. How old are you, Joseph? <laughs> Three. Wow, you're an old man. How old are you gonna be? Four for my Christmas. For your for your Christmas, you're gonna be four. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not how it works, son. For your birthday. For my birthday. When's your birthday? 
Tax. When's your birthday? I I get your Paw Patrol trucks. Oh, I'm you're gonna go get your Paw Patrol trucks? Yes. Okay, but I want you to stand here and answer talking to the microphone for a little bit. Mm. We're talking to Mr. Luke. You stop picking your nose. That's um, okay. Nobody can see you picking your nose. Do you like uh, Daddy and Mr. Luke's podcast? Yes. <laughs> I don't. I didn't believe that. Was that a yes? Yeah. What's your favorite part of the podcast? Story bots. <laughs> the story bots? I have never brought a story bot out onto the podcast. What do you think about me, just as a person? Am I am I cool? Yes. Again, that was hesitant. <laughs> just wait. Give it a couple of years. It'll be even more hesitant. The answer will just change. Am I a am I a, am I a mean daddy or a nice daddy? Mean daddy. Oh yeah, right. You paid him to say that with treats. Yeah. Why? Why? Let me ask you a question. Why do I catch you eating the dog's treats? Speaking of treats, why do I catch you eating the dog's treats at least three times a week? Why do you eat Holly's treats? <laughs> swimming. What? Swimming. Swimming. No swimming. Oh, you're sharing with Holly. Okay. Oh, that's good to share. Does she like sharing with you? Does she like it when you eat her treats? Does Holly like it when you eat her treats? Yes. What does she say? She does. She does. No. What's your favorite TV show? Number blocks. Number blocks? What? Yes. I thought it was Paw Patrol. No, number blocks. Okay. No, no, no. Hey, what's your favorite uh, superhero? Batman. Oh, I thought you were gonna say Daddy. Batman. The what answer about Spider-Man. Ah, oh, so close. The answer we were looking for was Daddy. <laughs> What's better, Batman or Spider-Man? Um, Batman. Excellent. Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man. In fact, no, he's he, he he's never Those seen. He's never seen. He's only ever seen Tom Holland. He's not gonna mess around <laughs> with that Tobey Maguire garbage. Well, once he sees it, he's gonna be like, "Wow, this is way better." Joseph, do you have anything else that you want to say to our podcast audience? We have literally tens of people that listen every week. Yeah, this do you have is... anything in Belgian that you would like to say to our Belgian listener? What do you think about Mr. Luke up there? He's great. He's the best. Luke. Yeah, that's Luke. <laughs> yep, it's Lukey, Lukey, Luke. <laughs> what Megan calls me. Wait, did Scott just come on? Hold on. Yes. Hi, right, gentlemen. What's going on? Are you going to come talk to Mr. Scott? Hi, Dad. Out of your mommy and daddy, who's your favorite? Daddy. Oh! <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> what, uh, what is your favorite snack? What's your favorite snack? Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Scooby-Dooby-Doo? Yes. That's not a snack. That's a cartoon dog that sounds like this. Ruh, <laughs> Raggy. It's a rose. A rose, Raggy. 